you have your Bibles, I'm super happy for you. You're going to need them. Here's what I want to do. I want to play a word association game with you. I'm going to say a word, and I just want you to note the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Just note it. Don't say it out loud. Don't turn to the neighbor you don't know and tell him what's the first thing that comes to your mind. But here's the word. The word is sex. Just note it, what came to your mind first. For some of you, you you may be thinking, wait a second, we shouldn't be talking about this at church. For others of you, you may be thinking, I am really glad I came to church today. (laughs) Others of you might be thinking, I now know what I want to do after church. Uh, Which, hey, if you're married, go for it. Here's the deal. Um, What I'm thinking right now is look at this. Just by saying one word, I have every single pair of eyeballs up here. Isn't that amazing? One word. Why is that? Well, it's because it's such a powerful word. Uh, It's such a powerful word. We live in a sexually obsessed culture. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You already know this. We live in a sexually obsessed culture where you are bombarded every moment of your day with the culture's ideas, expectations, and opinions about sex and sexuality. All the time, from the TV shows you watch, which are always pushing an agenda on you, don't think for a moment that they're not pushing an agenda. They're pushing an agenda all the time. From the TV shows that we watch, to the movies you watch, to the songs that you listen to. In my mind, all week long, as I knew I was going to talk about this, I had songs playing through my mind all week long that that pertained to the topic of sex. Which meant there was a lot of songs going through my head all week long. So the music you listen to, to the billboards you drive by, to the nonsense that appears on your social media feeds, the culture's influence on your understanding about sex and sexuality is immense. Is it not? Yeah, of course it is. You may be surprised to know that our culture is not the first culture that has been characterized by an obsession with sex. Our culture is not the first culture that has had widespread immorality. Our culture is not the first culture that throughout it has been boastful about their sexual license and mass confusion regarding who to sleep with, what sex they ought to sleep with. There's mass confusion. There's always been mass confusion about this. So I'm telling you, and you may be thinking, are you telling me that there's been another culture more sexually oppressed, more sexually obsessed, and more sexually boastful than ours? Oh, baby. Turn with me to the book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians. If you're new to the uh, Christian faith, and therefore new to the Bible, First Corinthians is in the New Testament. So the second half of your Bible, and first, the, the New Testament opens with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. First Corinthians is right after Romans. It's right before Second Corinthians, which makes it easy for you. So it's right after the book of Romans. And the culture at Corinth, as you know, we've been working our way through the book of Corinthians. We've uh, taken about a four or five week break from it as we've celebrated the birth of Christ. But the culture at Corinth was hyper-sexualized, way more so than our culture. Remember, 
Corinth was the home to the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the goddess of beauty, the goddess of sexuality. And each night in Corinth, a thousand temple prostitutes would come down into the city to offer their services to anybody, to anybody and everybody. And it was a way of worship to actually engage the temple prostitutes. And it was as normal as a, a way of life as you and your grandpa sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner. Just as normal as natural as that. And, and Corinth was ripe with this. Because remember, Corinth was a commercial city. It was an international seaport. And it had two major international hubs at, at the east, uh, the east banks and the west banks of Corinth, separated by only four miles. And you can bet when the sailors came into Corinth, they knew exactly where they were going. And they knew exactly what they were doing. And so it was a city, it was a culture that it was rife with sexual immorality. But more than that, it was rampant with homosexuality. Listen to one historian. Listen to what he says. He says, the sin of homosexuality had swept like a cancer through Greek life and from Greece it invaded Rome. We can scarcely realize how riddled the ancient world was with it. Even so great a man as Socrates practiced it. Plato's dialogue, the symposium, is always said to be one of is always said um, to be one of the great works on love in the world. But its subject is not natural love, but homosexual love. Fourteen out of the first fifteen Roman emperors practiced homosexuality. You think you got it bad in Oregon? Fourteen out of the first fifteen Roman emperors practiced homosexuality. And at this very time, Nero, the, the emperor, had taken a boy called Sporus and had him castrated. He then married him with full marriage ceremony and took him home in procession to his palace and lived with him as a wife. With incredible viciousness, Nero had himself married a man named Pythagoras and called him his husband. When Nero was eliminated and Otho came to, came to the throne, one of the first things he did was take possession of Sporus. Now listen, it, sexual immorality was rife within Corinth, which means when Paul goes to Corinth and he plants the gospel in the soil of Corinth, and remember, this is the way the gospel works. You don't plant a church. You plant the gospel in the soil of the community and a little church will build around it. But you don't plant a church. You plant the gospel in the soil of the community. And when Paul did that, he knew one of the struggles, one of the main areas of struggle that the church would always struggle with is in the area of sexuality as it was one of its main idols, just as it is in ours. Now, again, um, the people he's addressing are genuine Christians, Right? These are people who have really been born again. They are permanently joined to Christ. There's a real and there's a lasting union there, but they're struggling in the area of sexuality because it was just as rampant in, in our, their culture as it is in ours. And Paul's already dealt with it a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he refers to a specific case that was taking place, a specific case of sexual immorality that someone from within the church was sleeping with or better put, having sexual relations with his stepmom. And the church, rather than dealing with it through church discipline, they just let it slide. And Paul 
was just appalled by their response. And now in chapter 6, go ahead and turn to chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians. In verses 12 through 20, Paul's going to address sexual immorality again. Because he knows after he's left, um, even though he has given instruction that they ought to flee sexual immorality, which was always his instruction, he knows after he's left, some, rather than fleeing it, has drifted back into it. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to offer course correction to the Corinthians. And he's going to tell them four things. And um, if you're a note taker, this will form the outline of the message. So let me give them to you up front, and then we'll work our way through them, okay? You can kind of see where we're going. Here's what he's going to tell the Corinthians by way of course correction. First, your understanding of Christian liberty is distorted. Your understanding, your understanding of Christian liberty is distorted. And we'll see why he says that in a moment. That's in verse 12. Your understanding of Christian liberty is distorted. Second, your view of the human body is deficient. Your view of the human body is deficient. They had an under, they had an underlying philosophical position that caused them to see their body as basically a shell which meant they could do anything they want with it. And it doesn't really matter. There's no moral consequences. So they had philosophical underpinnings that gave rise to sexual immorality. Wait a second. Are you telling me philosophical underpinnings can give rise to sexuality, to, to sexual immorality? And if that's the case, could there be philosophical underpinnings in our own culture that give rise to sexual immorality? Well, if you're a philosophical naturalist and you're just a happy accident and there's no God that you're accountable to and nothing's going to happen after this life, well, then your only response is to eat, drink, and be merry. But if there's a God and if you actually belong to him, well, then there's a whole different thing. And so they had philosophical underpinnings. We'll see them in a minute. But note that um, their view of the human body is deficient. That's in verses 13 through 17. Then, third thing he tells them is your sexual immorality is destructive. Your sexual immorality is destructive. That's in verse 18. And then lastly, in verses 19 through 20, he says, your whole lives, including your sexual lives, are to be distinct. They're to be distinct. They're to stand apart from the culture. That's verses 19 and 20. So let's get into the text. We'll work our way verses 12 through 20. And, uh, well, we'll, we'll move pretty quick. Um, first off, Paul tells them, your understanding of Christian liberty is distorted. Look at, what he, look at what happens in verse 12. And note the quotation marks. Paul writes, all things, in quotation, he says, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be dominated by anything. Now, again, you should know in your uh, translation, there should be quotation marks around the first, the first little uh, half of the first sentence. Is that true in your translations? You see the quotation marks? Okay, all things are lawful for me. What he's doing is Paul's quoting one of the favorite slogans of the Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, they're saying. And they figured, uh, since as believers that we're saved by grace apart from works... And we're freed from having to keep the law of Moses to be right with God. Their understanding is that we can do anything we want then. We can just do anything we want. And what's scary about that argument is there's an element of truth in it. 
Paul himself had taught them that we're free from the law of Moses. That's absolutely true. He championed Christian freedom. Read the book of Galatians. But the freedom is always under the authority of Christ to serve the Lord wholeheartedly and your fellow man. You've got to remember, anytime you're freed from something, you're freed to something. And so they were free from keeping the law of Moses, but they're freed to the law of love. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ, to love the Lord uh, their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love their neighbor as herself. But the Corinthians, now what, what had happened is they had taken that teaching to its extreme. And they had said, well, since Christ has died for our sins and we're forgiven, we can just go out and live however we want. We can go and we can indulge all of our passions, all of our senses, and it won't affect our relationship with God. You see, they have a distorted understanding of Christian liberty. And may I add, a lot of Christians in America have a distorted view of Christian liberty. Uh, And a church like ours is easily susceptible to this because we, we emphasize our freedom in Christ. We emphasize freedom in Christ so much. We refuse to make rules out of things that aren't in the scriptures, that the scripture doesn't make rules out of. But we need, as a people, individually and collectively as a church, we need to be careful in reacting to legalism that we don't go too far to the other extreme. And notice how Paul answers this argument that all things are lawful for me. Notice how he argues, he, he answers this argument that all things are lawful for me. He doesn't disagree with the statement. He doesn't say, no, 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 you're wrong there. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, ref- he doesn't uh, resort to a new form of legalism and sets up all kinds of rules. What he does very wisely is he offers parameters. He offers guidelines for the Corinthians to consider. He says, yeah, all things are lawful, but notice what he says. Not all things are profitable. Not all things are profitable. So Paul's not content, and you shouldn't be either with lowest common denominator approach to Christian living. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be content with that. He wants the Corinthians and us to consider, are my actions? Yes, I'm free. I'm free to, to, to walk with the Lord. I'm freed from the law's demands. I don't have to merit my salvation. I'm free from all of these things. But are my actions, are they beneficial to my life? And are equally important are they beneficial to my witness to unbelievers? That is equally important. Are they beneficial to my life? That's hugely important. But equally important to that is, are my actions in this freedom beneficial to my witness to unbelievers? He wants everything. You see what Paul wants? He wants everything to go through the grid of the gospel and ensure that it's going to have a positive effect on your life, but also on the lives that we touch on a day-to-day basis. Secondly, he says, yes, everything's lawful, but I'm not going to be enslaved. I'm not going to be enslaved by anything. Paul says, all things are allowed me, but I won't let anything, I won't allow anything to get control of me. And that's an important distinction. Yes, all things are allowed me, but I won't let, I won't allow anything to get control of me. So the question is, as I exercise my freedom in Christ... Will I be enslaved to the very thing that I'm doing? Whether that's in sex, whether that's in alcohol, whether that's in whatever. What, in my freedom, as I'm exercising it, 
Will I become enslaved to the very thing that I'm doing? Will it end up uh, ruling my life? Will it end up ruining my life? Will it become an addiction that I can't stop? This is a hugely important topic. As we talk about uh, these things in relation to the body, our, our individual bodies, these are hugely important topics. Again, whether it's sex or alcohol, because the body can develop dependencies upon things. And so you've got to ask, is it beneficial to you? Is it profitable? Will it hinder my witness? Will it hinder or hurt my witness? And will, it, will I become a slave to it? And whatever that thing is, if, if you think, well, I, it, it may lead me down a path that I'll become enslaved to it, Paul would say, well, Christian liberty means you can walk away from it as well. You don't have to indulge it. So Paul tells him, your, your understanding of Christian liberty is distorted. The gospel says, in Christ you're freed from the Mosaic Law's demands, and you're freed to love the Lord your God with all your strength, heart, all your heart and strength and mind, and you're freed to love one another. And that, and that part right there has a huge impact on your witness. I'm free to love them completely. Will I indulge in my freedom, and will that hinder their relationship with the Lord? Does that make sense? So that's the first thing he says. Here's the second thing he tells them. Your view of the human body is deficient. Look at verses uh, 13 through 17. And note again the quotation marks. Food is meant for the stomach. And the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. But for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Hmm. Huge implications right there. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord. And will also raise us up by his power. The resurrection proves that God's for the body. And that you're going to live eternally in a body. A bodily existence. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We've been joined together with him. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now again, in Greek thinking, the immaterial was good. We've said this several times as we've worked our way through the Corinthian letter. We'll say it several more times. Paul will attack it again pretty heavily in, in chapter 15. But in Greek thinking, the immaterial was good, while the material was bad. And therefore, they saw the body as simply a shell. It was simply a shell. Uh, and it wasn't good. It was a bad thing. One Greek proverb said this, the body is a tomb. While another one, another Greek philosopher said, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. Everything was about the spirit. Everything was about the soul, not, not, about, not about an embodied existence. And that's the way that they viewed their bodies and thus their lives. The body's simply a shell to the soul and the goal is to be liberated from it. Salvation to them was liberation from the body. And therefore, again, as I mentioned, they had philosophical underpinnings that gave rise to their sexual immorality, which is why, verse 13, 
He says, they, they say, this is one of their favorite quotes, food is meant, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. One of, the, one of the Corinthian quotes. And do you see what they're saying? They're saying, because the body doesn't really matter. Um, and because the body, it's not going to be saved. There's no moral consequences to what we do with our body. And therefore, sex is nothing more than a physical appetite that we're to indulge whenever we get the urge. So whenever we get the urge, we just go and have sex. It doesn't matter with who. It doesn't matter when, where, however. It doesn't matter. Now, so they saw it as, as simply a physical appetite. They saw it as, a, as no more than a biological drive. Now, let's be honest. Um, sex is a biological drive, right? It's a bi- it is a biological drive, and it is an appetite. But it is not even remotely in the same category as food and sleep. It's not even remotely in the same category as food and sleep. But what happens when a man and a woman have sex is it connects us in just deep and profound ways. Food and sleep, as great as they are, they don't have the power to connect you to them interpersonally. But sex does. Sex has the power to connect you interpersonally. It's the reason why in verse 15, Paul forbids the Christians from having sex with a prostitute. He says, do you not know that a person who's united in intimacy with a prostitute is one in body with her? For it's said, the two shall become one. And then he says, flee from sexual immorality. Now listen, Paul offers just tremendously deep insight here. He says, you shouldn't have sex with the prostitute. And again, this was flying in the face of everything their culture taught. Why shouldn't they have sex with the prostitute? Well, he says, the two shall become one flesh. And he's talking about marriage. And we already know that one flesh isn't just talking about sex. The one flesh isn't just talking about sex. It's talking about the weaving together of a man and a woman at all levels of their life. And sex is the sign that this is taking place. Sex is is simply the sign that these lives have been woven together together as husband and wife. It's the expression of the woven togetherness of a husband and a wife. That's what it is. And it connects us in deep and profound ways. Now listen. Listen to what D.S. Bailey says. D.S. Bailey in his book, The Man-Woman Relation in Christian, Sh- in Christian Thought. Um, some of you will ask me for this book recommendation later. You don't need to buy it. It's super thick and I'm giving you the best quote out of it. So just trust me on that. Um, D.S. Bailey in his book, The Man-Woman Relation in Christian Thought. He, he, what he does though is he shows how groundbreaking Paul's teaching was. Listen to what he says. He says, Paul's thought owes nothing to any antecedent notions and displays a a psychological insight into human sexuality, which is altogether exceptional by first century standards. The apostle denies, now listen, the apostle denies that coitus is no more than an appropriate exercise of the genital origins. On the contrary, he insists It is an act which engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique mode of self-disclosure. So what Paul's saying, and this is just countercultural to the max in that, in that culture and countercultural to the max in our culture. What Paul's saying is sex isn't simply an appetite. 
And because of its power to unite us interpersonally, it also shouldn't simply be thought of as an afterthought. It shouldn't simply be an appetite, nor should it be an afterthought. Because sex makes us personally interwoven and joined together to another human, to another human being. And you might say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Well, ask yourself, why, why are women so upset and offended if they don't receive a phone call the next day? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why? If, if sex is simply an appetite, if it's simply a biological drive, why are women so upset and offended if they don't receive a phone call the next day? Here's the reason why. We can pretend it's one thing. We can, we can pretend in our culture that sex is one thing. But deep down, intuitively, we know it's something else. We know it's not simply a biological drive. And the Bible insists that it's so much more than that. Don't you see what that means? It means the Bible actually has a deeper and a higher view on our bodies and our sexual lives than anything the culture offers. It has a higher and a deeper view of our bodies and sexuality sexuality than anything the, the world offers you. And it says that sex isn't simply an appetite. And that's why the Bible puts rules around it to safeguard it, not because God's a killjoy, not because God's against pleasure, it's because he created our bodies uniquely for pleasure within the covenant relationship of a husband and a wife. Which, by the way, is what we're going to talk about next Sunday. We'll talk about sex within marriage. This week is sex outside of marriage and the pitfalls of it. Next week is sex within marriage and the pleasures of it. So I know we'll have two good weeks of attendance here at TCF. This is wonderful. Um, That's why God puts safeguards around it. Not because he's a killjoy, but, but because he says, I have created you to enjoy this immensely. But the greatest way of, the greatest way for you to find the joy and for you to experience the freedom that I give you is within the covenant marriage, the covenant of marriage. So what has Paul told him so far? First, your understanding of Christian liberty is distorted. Second, your view of the human body is deficient. Third, here's the third thing he says, your sexual, your sexual immorality is destructive. Your sexual immorality is destructive. Look at verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Um, do you remember in when we were working through Genesis, do you remember the Joseph and Potiphar wife story? Do you guys remember that one? What did Joseph do when Mrs. Potiphar, the cougar, kept coming on to Joseph over and over and over again, kept trying to entrap Joseph. What did Joseph do? He ran out of that house. And that's that's the imagery that Paul's using. Almost every commentary says Paul is hearkening back to the Joseph and Potiphar, Potiphar's wife story. Which means we're not to consider sexual temptation a challenge to be met. It's, we're not to consider sexual, t- uh, sexual temptation a spiritual challenge to be met, but a spiritual trap to be escaped. That's what he's saying. And a wise and mature Christian will do everything within their power to get away from it as quickly as they can. Whether, that, whether that's a person who's trying to entice you, 
or whether that's a computer screen or sexting or whatever the case may be to get away from it. He says, flee from it. Flee, run, get out of it. Get out of the proximity of that thing. And then he continues, look at verse 18. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. And I'll just tell you, this is some of the hardest, um, one of the hardest verses in the New Testament to translate. He says, every other sin is a, uh, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And what, what he's essentially saying is sexual immorality is self-defeating. It's totally self-defeating. It promises you life. But it's going to ensnare you. And it's going to take your life from you. That's the idea. It's going, to, it's going to promise you life. You think it's going to give you life. You think it's going to give you freedom. But it's actually going to ensnare you. And then it's going to take your life from you. And you'll always need more to satiate it. That's the law of diminishing returns. You'll always need more to satiate it. You'll think to yourself, well, I'll just take a little peek here. And then next week, to get the same arousal... It won't just be a peek. It'll be a long look. And then it won't just be a long look. It'll take more to get the same feeling. That's the law of diminishing returns. It takes more and more to get the same thing. And it'll just continue to progress. And what promised you life will end up taking it from you. Let me give you an example. Uh, A couple years ago, I had a couple come into my office. They do not attend here, so don't try to peg the couple. I had this couple come into my office, and um, they came in shaking. And the husband tells me, they sit down, they're both just shaking in my office, and he says, for the last couple of years, I've been trying to convince my wife to bring another man into our marriage bed. And she's repeatedly said, no, 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 no. I've been pressuring her for this for three years. She's consistently said no. Well, on my birthday, she said yes. And we brought another man into our marriage bed. And they went through with it. And then he said, and it's destroying our marriage. Destroying our marriage. He said, I can't get the images out of my head. I can't sleep at night. I'm angry with her. And we can't talk anymore. My first question to him was, how long have you been addicted to pornography? Law of diminishing returns. He said 38 years. Now listen, listen. It starts with pornography. But it's the law of diminishing returns. And he thought, by bringing another person into their marriage bed, it was going to bring them sexual freedom. It was, it was just going to spice it up a little bit. It was going to bring him and his wife sexual freedom. But what it actually brought him was bondage and death. Bondage and death. And they're now divorced. They're now completely divorced. She is riddled with guilt. Riddled with shame. I'm sorry. She's riddled with shame. And he is riddled with guilt over what he's done to his wife, what he's done to his marriage, and what he's done to his life. Now listen, this is why sexual immorality is so destructive. It is self-defeating. It promises you life. But it ends up leading you to your death. 
which is exactly what the scriptures tell us over and over and over again. In Proverbs chapter 5, I won't make you turn there, but I will read it to you. Listen to Proverbs chapter 5. My son, the proverb begins, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion of your lips and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman, they drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as gall. So it goes down sweet, but it turns real sour real quick. Sharp as a double-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. That's exactly the truth. That is why sexual immorality is so destructive. This is why the Lord takes sexual, sexual sin so seriously. And again, it's not because he's a killjoy. It's because he has a higher and a deeper view of sex, our bodies, and what real life looks like. And he wants us to walk in freedom. He wants us to walk in freedom. And by the way, it's one of the, right here, this is one of the things um, that is one of our aims for TCF this year is to start a group dealing specifically with this area in men's lives. Because we want to see men walk in wholeness. We want to see men walk in freedom. We want to see them walking out in real health. So if, if you're a guy and you, you know, in, as I'm talking about this area, this is hitting hard for you, come and talk to me afterwards. Maybe not in this room, because I understand what that would look like. Um, but email me. Uh, and we'll set up a time to talk. We'll get, we'll get that group going. And I'd love to see men in that group. So what Paul has told them so far is your understanding of Christian liberty is distorted. Your view of the human body is deficient. Sex isn't just an appetite. And because it's so powerful, it also shouldn't be thought of as simply an afterthought. Third, your sexual, sexual immorality is destructive. It promises you life, but in the end, it's going to strip you of it. And then lastly, in verses 19 and 20, Paul will say, your lives, including your sexual lives, are to be distinct. Look at verse 19. They're to be distinct. Verse 19. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within, within you, whom you have from God? Um, now, in chapter 3, Paul has said the church body collectively is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Here, he's saying it's individually. We are as well, because God's Spirit lives within us. So, both individually and collectively, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit resides within us. We're joined together permanently to the Lord by the Spirit. So, he goes, um, where is it? Verse 19. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. If you're going to underline something, right there. I'll tell you why in a minute. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So glorify God in your body. You see, the great lie of sexual immorality, and ultimately, really, any form of sin, is the idea that we are our own. That we belong to ourselves. And that's the lie of expressive individualism. If I'm mine alone, then I get to decide how I spend my time, who I sleep with, and how to use my body. But Paul's saying to them and to us that you're not your own. You're not your own. 
you were bought by God at the unbelievably high price of his son. And now my life and my body belong to him. And his love given to me, that shapes my identity, not my sexuality. You ever wonder why everything in our culture, sexuality is what gives us an identity? It's because we've rejected the identity that God's already given us in Christ. It's, we've rejected the identity that we're image bearers of God. And therefore, we've got to form our own identity. And this, now listen, this is Paul's point all the way through. All of this, sec, this misguided sexual immorality, what it is, is it's you looking for an identity. It's you looking for intimacy and love and lasting union. And Paul's saying, oh, Christian, don't you see? Don't you see the things that your heart really craves has already been given to you by Christ because you're joined together permanently with him. Why? Because he's paid the ultimate cost and you're in Christ. So the things that your heart craves are the things that you've already been given in Christ. You're just not living out of that gospel reality. He says, in Christ you are fully known and fully loved. He says, you want lasting union? There's no deeper union than that which, which is in, with you in Christ. The Spirit lives within you. The very thing your heart craves is given to you in Christ. And you know what that means? It means the gospel is actually the foundation for a life of sexual purity and Christian fidelity. The gospel is the foundation for a life of sexual purity and Christian fidelity. I'm not my own. You're not your own. We've been brought into a deep and lasting union with Christ. A life of intimacy and unity through Christ. And what we need as Christians in this culture is to live out this gospel reality. Well, let me ask you this. Is there any hint that the gospel made any bit of difference in the Greco-Roman world, in the area of sexuality? Is there any hint that the gospel changed the Corinthians' views on sexuality? Does it actually have the power to break the chains of sexual addiction? Well, listen to this little letter to Diagnosius. This is an epistle to Diagnosius, uh, written early 2nd century, so 100-ish, 100 AD-ish. Listen to what he says. For the Christians, now listen, this is so good. For the Christians are distinguished... From other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive mind. <laughs> nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined... And following the customs of their natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of the ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderfully and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. In uh, Every foreign land is to them as their native country. So he says they, they're able to assimilate into other countries. Every foreign land to them is their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. Now listen, they marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring, which is an interesting note that he makes. Christians do not destroy their offspring. 
They have a common table, but not a common bed. You know what that means? It means the gospel completely revolutionized their life. Because a common table, do you know how expensive it was to put food on the table in that culture? It was everything to you. It cost you 90% of your earnings was to put food on the table for your family. And what this guy is saying is these Christians, because the gospel changed their life, they became radically generous. So much so that they're willing to share all of their resources with others, but not a common bed. It so revolutionized them. Rather than being promiscuous, they were tied to their spouse. Rather than engaging in sexual immorality, they walked in sexual purity and freedom. Freedom to give away their resources as, as readily as they could. What would it look like for the church in America to get sexual immorality under control and to become like this? You think the gospel would actually make a difference in our, in our country if this actually happened? Unbelievable. They have a, I'm not done. I'm not even done with this quote. Some of you are thinking, praise God, let this guy get me out of here. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. He's saying, in every way, they look just like us, they talk like us, they, they assimilate into our, the country, they dress like us, but when it comes to matters of sexuality and, and uh, generosity... They're radically different than us. You see, this is what the gospel does. The gospel revolutionized the Corinthian culture. Here's what it means. It means no matter how steeped you are in sexual immorality right now, change is possible for you. If change was possible in Corinth, then it means for you change is possible for you. If the gospel can revolutionize the Greco-Roman world, remember, remember what we were talking about earlier, 14 out of the first 15 emperors we're practicing homosexuality. 1,000 temple prostitutes, as normal as you and, you and your grandpa sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner. If it can change that, if it can change that culture, then friend, it can change your life. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, can change your life. And Paul concludes, he says, you're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. And the text ends there, and we'll do the same. So here's what I want to do. With the last 15 minutes... Uh, let me close. Just real three straightforward, simple statements about the realities of sexual immorality, and they come right out of this passage. Three simple statements about the realities of sexual immorality. Here's the first one. Uh, fornication is far more damaging than our culture thinks it is. Fornication. You know what, you know what that means? Fornication is a fancy and fun word that you only get to use at church. Um, you don't ever hear fornication outside of the church. But here's fornication is a way um, to describe sexual intercourse between unmarried people. And that is the, the issue that Paul's addressing here. But you can expand that out, that idea, all the way out to sexual immorality. And what Paul's saying is it is far more damaging than our culture thinks it is. It's far more damaging. It damages, it ruins marriages. It ruins uh, the lives of the children within the marriage, a lot of times. Roy Ortland, I don't know if you guys know that name. He is a retired pastor now. But one of the quotes that he said years ago that stuck with me forever. He was talking to a group of pastors and he said, 
said, listen, men. Um, he said, if you engage in an adulterous affair, he said, the Lord will forgive you. The church will forgive you. Your wife might forget you, might, might forgive you, but your daughters will never forgive you. And I have two daughters. <laughs> and when he said that, I thought, oh, that, I thought, never. Uh, your daughters will never forgive you. It is far more damaging than anything our culture thinks. Listen to the words of uh, Proverbs chapter 7. I read you Proverbs 5. I'll just read you a hunk, out, a little chunk out of Proverbs 7. That's, again, it's a father speaking to his son about the dangers of sexual temptation and how he can be entrapped by it. Listen to what he says. He says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. From many a victim she has laid low. And all, and, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Hmm. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is the reality of sexual immorality. And what Paul is saying, what the Lord's trying to say, is come out of it. It's destructive. It's going to lead to your death. But I've bought you. I have cleansed you. There's a way to you to walk in freedom. There's a way for you to walk in freedom. So, so fornication is far more damaging than our culture thinks it is. Here's the second thing to note. Fleeing sexual sin is far more wiser than our culture thinks it is. It's far more wiser than our culture thinks it is. Do you guys remember a couple months ago, um, former Vice President Mike uh, Pence said he follows the Billy Graham rule. Do you guys remember this? It, it was on the news quite a bit for a while. And... Uh, the, and, Mike, and the Billy Graham rule is that as a married man, he will not have one-on-one -on -one appointments with another woman, whether that's lunches or dinners or whatnot. He just won't do it. Now, listen, whether you agree with Mike Pence or not, and this is not an endorsement of Mike Pence as a political candidate, please, don't, uh, please understand that. Um, and uh, whether you agree with the policy or not, he was ridiculed in the media for it, for saying, I'm, I'm not going to have a one-on-one -on -one appointment with a woman. I just won't do it. It's too high of a price. It's too, it's too great of a risk for me. And I remember thinking to myself, when he was being ridiculed on everything, I remember thinking to, him, to myself, good for him. He knows where his temptations lie. And if this is, if this is a temptation, then he's wise enough to know it's not a challenge to be met, but a trap to be escaped. And oh, by the way, from all outside appearances, he looks like he's been happily married for 40 years which is a pretty darn good thing in our day and age. So fleeing sexual immorality is far wiser than our culture thinks it is. So fornication is far greater. It's far more damaging than our culture thinks it is. Fleeing sexual, sexuality, fleeing sexual immorality is far more wiser than our culture thinks it is. Here's the third thing right out of this. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Is far deeper. And the change it produces is far more lasting 
than what our culture thinks it is. So let me close by asking you, are you entrapped in sexual sin? And do you feel guilt and shame over it? Here's the deal. Our culture, as you know, is all about canceling people. It's all about canceling people. We live in a cancel culture. But the Lord is all about forgiving people. But not just forgiving them, but changing them. He will forgive you. There's no doubt about that. But he will also change you. And change is possible. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The new has come. The old has gone. The new has come. The Lord's forgiveness is far deeper. And the change it produces is far more lasting than anything our culture thinks. So my friend, if you're ensnared right now, let me encourage you to come to the Lord. Come and be cleansed by the Lord. Be changed by His grace and His love. And let the identity He gives you shape your life, not your sexuality. Amen? Why don't you stand? We'll sing. Father, we thank you for this hard passage. And it takes real courage to admit, Father, that we've been ensnared by sexual immorality. We've been entrapped. And we know it, Father. For those who are in it, they know it. And they know it's leading to death. And so, Father, would you please, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let people reach out to you for forgiveness, first of all. You have said that if anyone repents... If they confess their sins and repent, you will forgive them of their sins. And so, Father, we pray that this morning, those who have been entrapped by sexual sin, that they would confess their sins to you. And they would want to come under your lordship. That your words and your ways would shape their life going forward. That they would acknowledge you as their Lord and as their Savior. And then, by power of the Spirit, it takes real courage to admit to others that there's areas of struggle. And so, Father, we pray that in the days ahead, um, as we hopefully start this group and as we have confessions with one another, that you would bring lasting change and real health, both to men and to women, Lord. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word, which shapes our heart attitudes back around the truth of the gospel and speaks to us of real life. We love you, Lord, in Christ's name.